shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever sits on anything on which the one with the discharge has sat shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And if the one with the discharge spits on someone who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And any saddle on which the one with the discharge rides shall be unclean. And whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries such things shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Anyone whom the one with the discharge touches without having rinsed his hands in water shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And an earthenware vessel that the one with the discharge touches shall be broken and every vessel of wood shall be rinsed in water. And when the one with the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes. And he shall bathe his body in fresh water, and shall be clean. And on the eighth day he shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and give them to the priest. And the priest shall use them, one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord for his discharge. If a man has an omission of semen, he shall bathe his whole body in water, and he shall be unclean until the evening. And every garment and every skin on which the semen comes shall be washed with water and be unclean until the evening. If a man lies with a woman and has an omission of semen, both of them shall bathe themselves in water and be unclean until the evening. And when a woman has a discharge, and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days, and whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And everything on which she lies during her menstrual impurity shall be unclean. Everything also on which she sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches her bed shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. And whoever touches anything on which she sits shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Whether it is the bed or anything on which she sits... When he touches it, he shall be unclean until the evening. And if any man lies with her and her menstrual impurity comes upon him, he shall be unclean seven days, and every bed on which he lies shall be unclean. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she is a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be to her as the bed of her impurity, and everything on which she sits shall be unclean, as in the uncleanness of her menstrual impurity. And whoever touches these things shall be unclean, and shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, she shall count for herself seven days, and after that she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, and bring them to the priest to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priest shall use one for a sin offering, the other for a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for her unclean discharge. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Now, the tradition I grew up in, we say this is the word of the Lord. <laughs> And we reply, thanks be to God. That is a weird reading, isn't it? Did you feel uncomfortable? Did you feel un like, confused? Absolutely. So he's hoping 
that as we kind of churn through this, we'll begin to understand why on earth that is considered important enough in the final edit for God to include for us. Because the reality is when we come to Leviticus, things get a bit difficult, don't they? Uh, We begin every New Year's resolution with a desire to read our Bible. We pull up a Bible reading plan, we get it from Kuron, we get it from the internet, wherever it is, and we start reading it. It always starts well. Have you ever noticed that? Genesis starts with a bang. Maybe not a big bang, but it starts with a bang. God creates the world, and within two chapters, everything falls apart. There's sin, there's murder, there's family conflict. God makes some promises to this guy called Abraham, and you know that, that seems to be the way that this, this story is going to unfold and reach its climax and, and get fixed. But then we hit Exodus, another really cool drama story. God's people, they're now trapped in slavery, but with spectacular power, God comes in and he throws plague upon plague upon the nations of Egypt, and he rescues them. There's burning bushes, there's flaming mountains, there's raining bread, the Ten Commandments. You want it, it's God at Exodus. But then you get to Leviticus, the place where all Bible reading programs come to die. Page after page after page of detailed instructions about how to make guilt offerings and grain offerings and sin offerings and how to anoint priests and what do you do when you have a discharge in fact what we've just seen in that chapter that we just read there's a whole chapter on discharges and some of it's just confusing but most of it would be offensive today and so we can't help but thinking that Leviticus might just be a little bit irrelevant okay great it's there but we don't have to think about it anymore so like that out of touch granddad that some of you may have you know has some really interesting things to say about politics but he thinks that World War II is still happening, so maybe we should just kind of, kind of politely ignore him and move on. And so what we do is we skip the book, either because we think it has nothing to say to us, or because it's so hard to understand that, well, we're never going to work out what it says anyway, we might as well just go and read a gospel, be enriched and edified with our brothers and sisters. But the contention that I want to make today is that if we were to remove Leviticus from our Bibles, we would be unable to understand the gospel that saves us. That's how important this book is, unable to understand why it is that we're saved. It's not irrelevant. It's not an impenetrable mystery. It will take some work, but it's worth it because it's actually central to our understanding of our theology of the New Testament and in particular, what's happening when Jesus dies for us on the cross. And so what I'm hoping is today is that we will kind of turn on the lights uh, and, and instead of kind of expecting us to kind of turn on the lights in this dark room and kind of just find a storage cover that we can just put off to the side, we'll actually turn on the lights and realize that there's a chandelier that spreads over everything and reveals a glorious ballroom that actually provides shape to the rest of the house that we're in. So that's the hope, that's the plan. Um, some kind of notes before we kind of jump in. I read from the ESV, uh, because this is a talk that we originally did at the CU, although it's better now, so that's good. Uh, the NIV uh, will be used in the slides, but I'm sure you can kind of carry along. And obviously, that's the Christian Union's logo. That's a shameless plug throughout the talk. So if you get um, brainwashed, that was the plan. Um, so let's start with Leviticus. What is Leviticus? Well, simply put, Leviticus is an instruction manual. Now, the Bible, it's made up of 66 books, and we have biographies, we've got letters, we've got prophecies, we've even got songs. But in the book of Leviticus, we have an instruction manual. Now, in the glove box of my car, I can pull out a, a manual. It's a manual about how to maintain a car. Uh, whereas in Leviticus, we have a manual, but it's not about maintaining a car. It's about how we maintain a relationship with God. That's what Leviticus is. It's a manual about uh, maintaining a relationship 
with God. And the principle that sits at the heart of the whole thing of this book is in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. It's up there on the screen uh, where God says to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, here's the principle, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is the foundational principle of the book, at the very heart of what it is to maintain that relationship. If you would dwell with God, then you must be holy as he is holy. And because of that, God gives them a manual that goes into excruciating and tedious detail about how they are to be holy and achieve that end. And so as we read the whole book of Leviticus, we see instructions ranging from what to eat to sexual relations and what's appropriate and what's not to public holidays and how to celebrate them. It is a very practical and fine-grained book. And in this manual, it has four parts. So again, up on the screen, uh, the first part, chapters 1 to 7, gives us instructions about sacrifices. The second part, in chapters 8 to 10, gives us instructions about priests. We get to chapters 11 to 16, and this was from the section that we read today. We get instructions about cleanness and its treatment and that sort of thing. And then finally, in the fourth part of Leviticus, chapter 17, all the way through to the end in chapter 27, we see instructions for holiness. And so as the book unfolds, we see more and more of what it looks like to be the holy people that wants to dwell with the holy God, who he has claimed to be his own. So that's kind of the big picture instruction manual. It's got all the details there. But as a way of entering into the book of Leviticus, we're not going to start at the beginning where you think we would be. We're actually going to start in that third section, in that section of uncleanness and its treatment. And we want to make sense of this concept of clean and unclean, because if we can do that, we actually crack the book open. Uh, And the key verse for us in this section, then, is chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, Let's have a look at this. I'll begin from the halfway through verse 9. Chapter 10, verse 10. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. And that verse in the middle there up on the screen, verse 10, is the verse that gives us two sets of categories that help us make sense of the world God gives his people. Uh, The first set uh, is um, basically what something is. Uh, You can either be common or you can be holy. Now, it helps at this point to remember that holiness in the Bible is first and foremost not moral purity. Holiness will include that kind of thing, but but it literally means to be holy is to be set apart, to be reserved for special use. So, for example, in my house, there are two types of towels. We have the common towels, and we use those for everything. I've got young kids. You can kind of imagine what those towels could get used for. Uh, They can get used for whatever. But, But there is a certain set of towels that exist in our storage cupboard that are only ever used for our guests. They're our holy towels. Now, it's not that those towels are kind of morally superior to the other towels, although it would be tempting to, given what those towels get used for, but it's just that they've been set apart for a particular purpose. And so everything in the world, according to Leviticus, can be put in one of those two states. You can be common or you can be holy. And so, for example, uh, the holy things that we see in Leviticus are things like God's tabernacle, uh, the altar, the golden bowls, the plates, uh, even the priests, everything that was used in service of God. Uh, But everything else was by definition common. And so they had bowls and plates too. They might have even been golden. But the difference was because they were common, they could be used for absolutely anything. You want to eat with them? Go for it. You want to use them as a potty like some of my kids have tried to do? Well, it's not ideal, but be my guest. Nothing bad is happening there. 
holy, common. But here's the interesting thing. Common things could become holy things. Uh, it happened through a process called sanctification or consecration. And it was usually done through a variety of means, depending on what it was, whether it was washing or sacrifice. But regardless of what the method was, something that was common could become something that is holy. Now, hold that in your mind. We'll come back to that in a second. So that's the holy and, and the common. But there's another pair of words that we saw in chapter 10, verse 10. Uh, and this time it's not about what something is, but it describes a thing's condition. You could be clean or unclean. Now, cleanness and uncleanness in the Bible... Super tricky concept to try and understand because when we hear that, we tend to think hygiene, right? But, but that's not quite right. Uh, to be clean or unclean was a ceremonial status. And so there were some things that were always unclean, like certain animals, like pigs and that sort of stuff. Uh, but there were other things that could be clean or unclean depending on a variety of circumstances and actions. Uh, and that's true of human beings. You could be clean or you could be unclean. You could kind of go between the two. And so if you were clean and you became unclean, the Bible has a word for that. It's to defile yourself or to pollute yourself. Uh, and you could do it in a number of ways. So, for example, uh, you could make yourself unclean by a morally evil action. That's one we're probably expecting. So, for example, you might not be able to see it on the screen, but that's okay. Leviticus 18, verse 20, uh, we see that having sexual relations with your neighbor's wife, that's adultery, you defile yourself, not a surprise. But it wasn't always moral. So, for example, Leviticus chapter 11, verse 7, we're told that a pig is unclean for you. You must not eat its meat or touch its carcass. Or again, like we saw in today's reading in chapter 15, verse 19, anyone who touches a woman during her period becomes unclean. Now, there's nothing inherently evil about those actions, and yet according to God, they bring uncleanness. Now, if you became unclean, there were certain things that you could do to cleanse or purify yourself to be clean again. Uh, usually it involved washing yourself and your clothes, like we saw in the reading. For more serious things, it involved the sacrifice of animals. And so if you look up on the screen, there's our big picture. You've got the clean and the unclean. And if you combine them then with the holy and the common, our main categories, what we end up coming up with is a grid through which God's people were to view the world. And there were four possible combinations. You can see them there on the axes. Uh, the first one, which is the one in green, is the one that is probably the most common and the, the default condition of the average Israelite. It was to be both common and clean. Now, as we've seen, some things and some people could be sanctified or consecrated and made holy like the priests. Uh, but generally speaking, common, clean, that's your general state of being. Now, as these rites kind of went about their daily business, what would happen is that they would do things or, or things would happen to them that would cause them to become unclean. And so they'd kind of fall down and, and, and they'd need to kind of work out how to cleanse themselves and get back up to their default situation. And the reason they do that, and the reason this is a problem, is because of the whole underlying principle that sits under the system. Do you remember what it was? To dwell with a holy God, you yourself need to be holy. The two can't come in contact with one another. In fact, nothing that is holy can come in contact with anything that is unclean. And anything that's unclean can't come in and approach what is holy. To do that is to profane or to desecrate God. You're starting to see some of these terms that you've seen in the Bible before. Uh, and so, for example, we actually see this uh, in Leviticus chapter 21. Uh, uh, think, uh, yep, we've got a verse up there, verse 11. Uh, the high priest must not enter a place where there's a dead body. He must not make himself unclean even for his father or mother. That's how serious this is can't even visit his own family who've died 
nor leave the sanctuary of his God or desecrate it because he's been dedicated by the anointing of his God. He, he's holy. Uh, or again, chapter 22, verse 3, we see the opposite. If any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean and yet comes near the sacred offerings that Israel has consecrated to the Lord, that person must be cut off from my presence. And so if the holy and the unclean come together, the holy thing is profaned, and so the sanctuary of God and the name of God is profaned, and the result was that the perpetrator was to be cut off from the people of Israel. And so what that meant was, if you were an Israelite, the goal of your life was to live above that purple line on the screen. Because unless you were above that line, you could not dwell with God. And that's why verse 31 of our reading, the very last verse that I ended on, said, you must keep the Israelites separate from the things that make them unclean, so that they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place which is among them. Everything was about working out how to stay above the lines so that they could dwell with God. Now, here's a really cool thing. I don't know whether you guys are fans of architecture. Uh, I tend to be, although I forget all the terms like Art Deco or whatever it is and never work out what one is what. But the whole way that the Israelite camp was designed was designed to teach you this thing. So here's a map. At the very center of the camp was the tabernacle. This was the tent form of the temple. Uh, and this is where God dwelled. His glory was there. And it's where the priests offered sacrifices. It was the place of holiness. Now, around the tabernacle was the camp. This is where the Israelites lived, such that God dwelled in their midst. Now, the camp was a place of cleanness. And so long as the community kept themselves clean, they were able to dwell with God. Now, there is a third zone around the camp. This is affectionately known as outside the camp. Uh, and this is where people who are unclean lived. So this is probably resembling your teenager's bedroom or something like that, right? Just a place that you just don't want to go. It's where all the icky things are. Uh, but this was much more serious because if you were unclean and you were forced to live out there, to be outside the camp, that was to be excluded from the presence of God. And that meant to be excluded from the blessings of being in relationship with him. You did not want to live here. And so everything in your life was geared towards living above the line so that you could dwell with God. And if you're with me so far, that in essence is the world of Leviticus. That's the grid through which you can see it and understand it, the grid through which they viewed their world. And in one sense, it makes so much sense, right? You need to be holy because God is holy. And like we've already seen, uh, that, that, that kind of just kind of clicks and kind of makes sense if God is holy. But what's confusing, I think, is the fact that there are still parts of the Levitical system that just seem outrageously arbitrary, right? Just even sometimes downright wrong. And so how do we make sense of what's going on here? Why does God set up the system to do it like this? Uh, well, we're going to answer that question. We're going to answer it in the negative by answering what it isn't. So let's begin by saying what the system of Leviticus that God gives his people doesn't teach. This is how we misread the manual. So the first thing, I've got three things for you. The first thing is, it doesn't teach you about hygiene and health. Now, some people try to make sense of Leviticus by saying, well, they didn't have modern medicine back then and they didn't really have that kind of knowledge. And so God gave them clean and unclean rules to keep them healthy. So the unclean animals, they're the ones with diseases. The stuff about childbirth, it's about preventing infection. The discharges thing was about restricting the spread of disease. Uh, but as far as that goes, it's, it's interesting, but it, the data just doesn't agree. Uh, some of it might be healthy, but some of the clean animals are actually more questionable than the, the unclean animals. And so whilst wild pigs might carry diseases, it's not as if you can't cook them carefully. So it's not actually hygiene and health. Second, it's not an entirely random system. 
Some people just kind of go and say, oh, there's no system. God just kind of gave you a bunch of rules uh, so that he would you know, teach them that their job was to follow him regardless of what he said. Uh, but as we've already seen, that can't be the case, can it? Because things like adultery make us unclean. Morally evil acts make us unclean. So it can't be random. There's something about some of the parts of the system that we know from other parts of Scripture that are sinful in all ages and all places. So it can't be that it's just random. Uh, which leads us to the third thing, which I think where most people kind of end up, and that's if, if the system isn't arbitrary, then the whole system must be about what's morally right and wrong. There is something inherently wrong with periods and sex and bacon. But when you think like that, it's like, actually, that's just messed up, right? Because think about what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7. He declares all foods clean. And basically what he's saying, there's nothing inherently evil about bacon, and you'll be really glad to hear that, right? Um, there's nothing inherently evil about it. And it's not just bacon that the principle extends. All the other things, like sex and childbirth, are actually good elements in God's creation. And so it can't be morally random, uh, morally um, kind of prescribed. And yet under the Levitical law, they still make you unclean. And so it kind of leaves you with that same question, what is going on? If it's not hygiene, if it's not random, if it's not moral, then what is it? And the answer to that is that it is symbolic. Uh, they are symbols and things that are meant to teach us something. Some of those symbols will have a basis in what is moral in our world. Some of those other symbols might feel random, but together as a package, they work together to teach you a single lesson. Now, I don't want to make this easy for you, so I'm not going to give you the lesson straight up. We're going to have some fun and try and find this out. So I kind of spent some time kind of trawling through Leviticus, and I'm going to take us through what I'm guessing, could be wrong, is a week in the life of an average Israelite. Okay? So I'd like to introduce you to Yeshua. He's an Israelite man from the tribe of Issachar, and he has a wife, Naomi, and they have two teenage kids who aren't important for the story, and so we don't know their names. They're just a boy and a girl. Now, it's Monday, beginning of the week. Yeshua come homes from, comes home from the field, uh, having worked, and he goes to hug his wife, and then he stops. It's that time of month. He can't touch her because anyone who touches her will become unclean. She's currently sleeping on a separate bed out the back, and if anyone touches what she's touched, they'll be unclean as well. And I've just got the proof text kind of floating up in the screen just for your information if you're interested. Tuesday, day two of our week, over dinner, Yeshua finds a dead mouse in a clay water jar. He now has to dispose of the water, break the jar because they're both unclean, and because he touched the carcass when he removed it, he needs to wash his clothes and he's unclean until evening. Wednesday, Naomi's seven-day period of uncleanness due to her menstrual period comes to an end. Now she needs to wash her clothes, bathe in water, and she'll become clean again. Thursday night, Yeshua and Naomi have, maybe we could call it a marriage moment because her, her period has finished. But as a consequence, now they need to bathe with water and they'll both be unclean until the next day. And, and they also have to wash their sheets and their clothes as well. Come Friday, it's the end of a school week. Uh, their son and his friends want to go out and come have a bit of fun out into the hills. But they have to go through the outside of the camp where people with all the skin diseases live. And so as they pass through and they try to get to the river, people yell at them and say, unclean, unclean, unclean. Come Saturday, it just, it just keeps stacking up. Their daughter now gets her uh, period and so she's unclean for another seven days and so she has to start using a stool at mealtimes that has been explicitly set aside for that purpose. And then if things couldn't get any worse, she hits Sunday and Naomi finds some green mold on a cloth. And so now what she needs to do is go show that mold to the priest who will isolate it for seven days to see whether or not she can wash 
or she needs to burn it. That's a week in the life of an average Israelite. Now, here's the question. What does the Levitical system teach you? It teaches you that you are not holy. That's the whole point of the system. God is teaching you that there is something about you and the world that you live in that cuts you off from God. And that something is sin. There is something in our world, in us, that is decidedly unholy, not just in the common sense, but in the unclean sense. And so uncleanness in the book of Leviticus comes to represent all that we are in our natural state before God. And we saw what that is in the week of the average Israelite, didn't we? It is impossible to stay clean. Uncleanness is unavoidable. And that's because God sets the system up in such a way that uncleanness infects not just some parts of your life, but all parts of your life. So chapter 11, it impacts food. Chapter 12, it impacts childbirth. Chapters 13 to 14, it impacts skin diseases and boils and burns. Chapter 15, like we saw, impacts discharges, whether it's snot or semen or blood. And it's not just that it affects all parts of your life, it affects everything and every moral status of life. So things that are morally wrong like adultery. But then there are things that are morally neutral, like the eating of various animals. And then there are even things that are morally good, like giving birth to children and sexual intercourse. And the whole point of the system was that no matter where you turned, you can't escape the lesson. Because God has designed the system in such a way that all of life, whether you're eating or cleaning or working or having sex or raising children or doing things that God's law prohibits, you are being taught that in your natural state, you cannot approach God. And what was true ceremonially for the Israelites is true morally for us today. As we are in our natural state, we cannot approach God because the holy and the sinful can never come in contact with each other. Because what results is not just to profane holy things, but judgment and death. Because God in his holiness consumes that which is unclean. And I think we know this, right? You remember that famous passage in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah, he has that vision of the throne room. He sees the Lord and the seraphim are all around, flapping around the place. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. And what is it that Isaiah says? Do you remember? He cries out in terror and says, woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Isaiah had learned lesson. And so if any of us would seek to have a relationship with the living God, seek his blessing, claim his friendship, find his favor, then this is the place to start. Because I think most people think they can approach God as they are. In fact, I think that's the prevailing assumption of our society, at least for those who still think there is a God. It's that God should not only kind of of be open to it, but openly accept them regardless of who they are, no matter how they come to him, because God is love. But that's only half the story. He's also holy. He dwells in inapproachable light, and there is nothing you can do in your natural state to reach him. And so if you would come to God, you need to first acknowledge this lesson, this fact like throwing an addiction right the first step to quitting is to admit that you have a problem and so the first step to dwelling with God is to admit that in your natural state in your sinful state 
it is impossible for you to do so. That leads us to the first lesson, I think, of Leviticus. Only holy people can approach God and we are not holy. Now that leaves us, I think, with a dilemma, doesn't it? Because supposing that we have come to acknowledge our sinfulness and that the problem of relationship lies not with God but with us, then how can we dwell with Him? Because no matter what we do, we can't make ourselves holy. And that leads us to, thankfully, the second lesson of Leviticus. God makes us holy. And He does that through the means of sacrifice. And that's why I think in Leviticus we have so much time spent on sacrifices and priests. Because through sacrifice, you are cleansed of your guilt and defilement from sin. The Bible has a word for that. We saw it in our reading. It's the word atonement. Uh, We had to make it up because we didn't have a word for it. When uh, William Tyndale translated the Bible into English, he actually kind of went, okay, at one mint. The idea is that you bring two parties together. And so, for example, as we read through that first part of Leviticus and we see the prescriptions for the sin offering, we see it at the end, the priest shall make atonement for the person and he shall be forgiven. And that tells us two things, I think, about the sacrifice that God gives us to make us holy. Uh, The first is that God provides the means of atonement. He's the one who kind of says, this is how things go. Uh, But the second is that it's the shedding of blood that brings atonement. And we actually see both of these things in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, another key verse of the book. For the life of a creature is in the blood, this is God speaking, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. This is God's given means to you and I to approach Him. And it's not just for the, kind of the, the, the Israelites back then, it's also for everyone everywhere because we see this affirmed in the New Testament as well. So, for example, in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, uh, we see an affirmation that the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But then he adds something a chapter later. He says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Okay, hang on a minute. Can't dwell with God, we're not holy, so God provides a means, a means of sacrificial atonement. Here's all these animals, go for it, then we can dwell. But it doesn't work. What are you doing, God? Well, it's the same reason as lesson number one. He gives us Leviticus to prepare us to understand his world and our spiritual condition so that when he provided the actual means of atonement through blood, but not of animals, but of his sacrificed son, Jesus, we would understand it and go, yes, there's my way to God. That's the way that I can dwell with him. This is how I can finally be at peace. And we see it affirmed in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. So if I could kind of zoom back out of those pixels and look at the big picture again. Without Leviticus, we would have no way of understanding the significance of the cross. Because when Jesus came and died on the cross as a sinless sacrifice, we'd just be like, what is this? But with Leviticus, we not only see our great need to be cleansed, to be atoned for, but it pushes us to go, that's the way. The only way. 
I'm going to Jesus, the only means that God has provided for me, the only means that God has provided for you to dwell with him forever. And that, in a nutshell, is Leviticus. It's not just a pointer to our great need, but a pointer to God's great provision in the blood of Jesus who cleanses us and makes us holy. And so as we read Leviticus and we kind of work through that agonizing detail, it is meant to move our hearts verse by verse, not to boredom, not to frustration, but to great wonder at our God who would not only take the care to set things up in history that we would understand our plight, but also set things up in history so that when he solved it for us, we would see it, claim it, and rejoice. Hopefully that's helped you understand a bit more of the book of Leviticus. And when you read it at the beginning of next year for your New Year's resolution, you'll get there and go, I get this, this is great. It'll move you not to frustration or neglect, but actually deeper appreciation of what God has done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you and your wisdom set up the system and gave us a grid so that we might understand your work in the world as you sought to fix our problem. Help us to remember always that we approach you as a holy God and that the basis by which we can do so without fear of being cut off or burned is because your son shed his blood to make us holy. Let us move us to thanksgiving in that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.